From the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, this is The Steady Stater, a podcast dedicated to discussing limits to growth in the steady state economy. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brian Check, and our guest today is John Bodley. John is Regents Professor Emeritus at Washington State University, where he taught in the classroom all the way from 1970 to 2013. His research interests include cultural ecology, the survival of indigenous peoples, and contemporary issues in anthropology with an emphasis on scale, complexity, and power. He's the author of several renowned books, including Victims of Progress, The Small Nation Solution, and the highly influential Anthropology and Contemporary Human Problems. John Bodley, welcome to the Steady Stater. Thank you, Brian. John, you know, I first heard of your work, oh gosh, 20-some years ago, and it was called Anthropology and Contemporary Human Problems. I've had that book in my mind the whole time, and uh, I'm really happy. This is really a privilege to be able to talk with you today on the Steady Stater. Well, thank you. I, I hope you've got my most recent edition, which I don't even remember what year it was, but it, it changed every year. I mean, every time I did a new mm-hmm. edition, there were new perspectives added. Yeah. Well, I noticed that uh, most of your books have been into a number of editions, so that's a sign of a good writing and, and uh, very effective and influential writing. Thank you. Well, John, we're accustomed to talking with ecologists, economists, policy wonks, and politicians on the steady stater. We've long sensed, though, that we're missing a lot of the puzzle pieces by not having more input from anthropologists such as yourself. Can you give us an elevator pitch for why steady staters need to familiarize themselves with anthropology? Well, I think the main thing is that it gives a a lot longer perspective. And if we look at what people were designed were designed themselves to be, it's in a steady state economy. So hmm. anthropologists would focus a lot on the, what I call the tribal world, which is like the first uh, 200,000 years or so of human existence. In that world, we were all living in steady state economies. And it's quite different from where we are now, of course. But it, we need to get back to some of the features of that world if we're going to live in a steady-state economy, if we're going to continue with our present system. Fascinating. Modifying. Right off the bat, that's a very uh, encouraging uh, aspect to anthropology then because, you know, we're accustomed to thinking that it's such a long, uh, <laughs> long way from where we are now, but in fact... You know, yeah, it had been the human condition for eons. Uh, it's our basic humanity. And in fact, more people mm-hmm. have lived in the tribal world. If we, if we consider all the people that have lived and died in the last two, 200,000 years, more mm-hmm. people were tribal than what we see today, even with the huge expansion mm-hmm. of population now. So mm-hmm. this is really who we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good point. Who we, who we were. 
Well, you know, you you certainly know that in ecological economics, we talk a lot about scale, which for us connotes the size of the human economy relative to its containing, sustaining ecosystem. That's that's why how we distinguish scale from just size. Period. Now, you talk a lot about scale too, but your connotations are a little different, aren't they? Well, I think they they apply it more broadly. <clears throat> Because scale can be applied to time too, and, and as well as things, and when we do this in as orders of magnitude of time and of things, we can really get a different perspective on it. One way into this is to think of thresholds in relation to scale, and that as you go up by orders of magnitude in whatever we're looking at, there you. Cross a threshold and things become qualitatively different. So it's not quantitative by itself. The quantitative difference leads to a qualitative change. And if we think of things like wealth accumulation, as wealth increases, say the individual wealth or household wealth by orders of magnitude, it gives people different capabilities. And those different levels give people different capabilities to influence the system. So the people in the growth category and the higher levels of growth can then drive the growth machine and make the economy bigger because that's that benefits them more than it would other people. Is is that what you uh, refer to in your books as elite directed growth? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So people that have the highest levels of of in of wealth, really, because wealth is more important than income in this respect, they're the people that can push the growth machine, can direct it in such a way that they can concentrate benefits for themselves and they can shift the costs to the rest of society, the people that are at lower wealth levels and therefore have less power. So they pay the costs and the environment pays the costs, but the people at the highest levels of income are harvesting the benefits. Of course, that gives them an incentive to keep pushing the growth machine. You know, I should ask you, if, if steady staters could only read one of those books of yours, which one should it be? Ah, yeah, that's a good question. Probably the uh, Small Nation Solution, because that mm -hmm. highlights the benefits of keeping decision-making low, keeping your political system low, and maximizing the democratic input and the human the human dimension and I think that's another important concept here that there are, are cultural processes that relate to the scale of the system of the cultural system and that in the tribal world which is really a steady-state economy humanization is the dominant process and that means taking care of people that's all the focus is on in a politically organized uh, world or cultural system, the focus becomes taking care of the political system and political leaders or rulers, and, and the, that puts the human side in second place. Mm -hmm. The third system of the, the commercial world, then the emphasis is on profit making and, and corporate business. And that can overpower the political system which in turn overpowers the human part. Right. I think uh, 
That reminds me of a, a quote in the opposite direction, you might say, from one of your other books, The uh, Victims of Progress. You said, our cultural metabolic rate is too high. Can you uh, yes. explain that? Yes. Uh, we just have too much throughput. We're, we're using energy to make things, to make stuff far at a far higher level per capita than what uh, people in the tribal world were needed. And of course, that is also a reflection of our huge expenditures on marketing, which increase that. And the whole elite-directed part requires this material uh, flow that is way, way more than what people actually need. So, I mean, if you look at, if, if you make the human uh, humanization, what I call humanization, which is the production and caretaking maintenance of people, then you don't need that much, in fact. Uh, so, and, and these uh, energy flow, energy and material flows can be ranked by orders of magnitude also. And that becomes very, very clear when you compare the three worlds, the tribal hmm. and the politically organized world and then the commercially organized or dominated world. Mm -hmm. So this is a pretty clear measure of, of what kind of impact we're having on the natural world uh, as well as on people because a lot of that material stuff uh, in our world, a lot of it goes into military expenditures as well as marketing. And of course, our food system, the scale of the food system increases its material cost. Well, yeah, that leads to another quote of yours. In The Power of Scale, that's one of your other books, you call political empires, quote, grossly oversized, extremely vulnerable dinosaurs that can't stand major environmental perturbations. So John, what, what other impending yet little-known horror stories are we looking at in the 21st century? Oh, my. <laughs> it, just, it just keeps going. I mean, what, almost whatever we want to look at. I mean, deforestation. Uh, you know, my, uh, one of my big fieldwork projects was in, in the Amazon. And places that I looked at were being impacted by uh, the fossil fuel industries where they were exploring either for oil or natural gas. They would uh, open up uh, uh, trails and pathways for doing their uh, uh, sonar uh, testing. Uh, and those would become trails for people to go in and, uh, and hunt game and for people to do logging. So one of the places where I did a very uh, detailed uh, study of the palm trees that, that many people were living, where there was a village that had been there for thousands of years, in, in, in a, basically a steady state, uh, within about 20 years, it was completely deforested, totally, totally wiped out. Uh, it's just like, hmm. where do you stop this? It's amazing. Uh, one of the other areas that was not invaded is now a, a biological and a, a community reserve. Uh, it's pretty, it makes it pretty clear that there are alternatives. If we can, if we let uh, tribal people and indigenous people stay in control of their territories where they're still largely self-sufficient, they can keep things in place. 
otherwise it's just uh, disappearing. Highways, and there was even a dam proposed in one of these areas. All of that is for, uh, you know, for, to keep the global economy getting bigger. Yeah, well, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but you know what? We have to take a short non-commercial break now, and uh, we'll let Rick Tibbetts give us a message here. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying the show. Did you know that in addition to this podcast, you can stay up to date with the Steady State Economy on social media? Cassie has its own Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages where we share new Steady State Herald articles, podcast episodes, news about the degrowth movement, and important organizational announcements every week. You can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy in the search box and on Twitter at Steady State Econ. The at being the at symbol and Steady State Econ being all one word. Be sure to like and follow our pages and share them with your network to spread the word and raise awareness of the need for a steady state economy. Now, back to the show. You know, at Cassie, we talk all the time about what we call steady statesmanship in international diplomacy, or the application of steady state economics toward global population and consumption stability. It sounds like uh, we might find some good tips in your book, The Small Nation Solution, to give us some guidance in honing our steady statesmanship. Do you uh, talk much? Do you have policy proposals per se? Or? No, there are, there are policy proposals. In fact, quite a few because just, for example, with population growth, one of the things that we can compare is in the, in the tribal world, which was steady state, um, women were empowered to make family planning decisions, uh, and that, that, that of course has a huge significance today. And I think it's just as relevant uh, that women ought, need to be able to to regulate family size. Uh, there mm-hmm. are the other thing I think a big concept is that uh, the the political focus needs to be on. Uh, distribution rather than production. So mm-hmm. increasing production is relatively easy as long as we have the flow of energy and materials. But what's much more difficult is making sure that what is produced gets to people that need it and that the emphasis be on things that actually benefit people. Uh, that's so it's production, it's distribution over production. It's also an emphasis on wealth versus income. That if income can be stabilized with, say, as simple a concept as a universal basic income, which again is a defining feature of, of sustainable economies in the tribal world, then then we can focus uh, we can focus more on wealth building in in, in meaningful ways rather than uh, simply looking at income. Okay, now in addition to policies, what about politics? Uh, do you have any ideas for political traction, uh, steady statesmanship uh, with collaboration with some of these smaller nations? Smaller in terms of the their material footprints? Yeah, well, a, a lot of these small nations are actually working together too, and I think that's that's an important dimension to this. Uh, 
for example, in the Caribbean, uh, there are almost like federations of small nations there that uh, share their economy or share their decision making and even things like their monetary systems. So yeah, I think that small nations do provide all kinds of models of, of, for political organization that gets the uh, subsidiarity and the irreducibility and the heterogeneity processes all uh, in place. Good models for how that can work. Pacific Island nations are doing the same thing. Particularly the ones that are worried about uh, rising sea levels. They're forming, in effect, uh, federations of, of linked, uh, linked organizations, linked governments that are working together to press at the global level for their, uh, their rights, their human rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, let's shift gears just a little bit, and, and then maybe we can wind it down with this. You know, some of the scientific professional societies have taken a position on economic growth to clarify that despite what we hear from neoclassical economists, there are limits to growth, and there is a fundamental conflict between economic growth and environmental protection, as well as long-term economic sustainability. I'm talking here about the Wildlife Society, Society for Conservation Biology, American Society of Mammalogists, and a handful of others. Have any of the, the scholarly, professional, anthropological societies done likewise? And uh, if not, which one might be most interested? Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, we do make statements. And of course, the American Association for the Advancement of Science is also becoming more vocal about this. But there are sort of alliances and statements put out by cross-disciplinary groups that have made very strong statements on all of this. But yeah, I think we can all do more, absolutely. And anthropology is, is an obvious one. There is a Society for Applied Anthropology, and you know we've been pretty uh, pretty focused on these questions but i think mm -hmm. you know, we can all do more uh, absolutely right well i guess you know with every uh, bunch of problems there there are little silver linings here and there in terms of advantages to scale too i suppose oh, yeah no. <laughs> it, it, that's that's getting the decision making at the right level right <laughs> recognizing that things some some problems are irreducible they have to be global Mm -hmm. so we have teams, international teams of scientists uh, that are really working together. Mm -hmm. uh, China, for example, has become amazingly prominent in a lot of this research. It's, it's truly uh, remarkable and very, very encouraging. One thing that stands out about China to me is that as pro-growth as they are, unlike the USA, and the U.S. political system, let's call it, China has been very, very open about the conflict between growing their economy and protecting their environment. I mean, they have actually at times lowered their growth rate plans. I mean, it's still it's a hellacious uh, rate of growth, but oh, yeah. nevertheless, at least they're truthful 
frankly, about that fundamental conflict. And that alone is worth a lot, I think, for the decades to come. There's more to be said. Well, John, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. We'd like to get you back on to talk in more depth, too, in particular about the political effects of scale and your insights on elite-directed growth. Until then, stay safe, get vaccinated, and keep up the good work. (laughs) Thank you. Well, folks, that about wraps her up. We've been talking with John Bodley, the great anthropologist. I'd go so far as to call him the steady staters anthropologist. We learned a bit about scale in the anthropological sense. And I'd encourage everyone to get a copy of at least one of his books, especially The Small Nation Solution. We'll have John back on the show before you know it, so stay tuned. I'm Brian Check, and you've been listening to the Steady Stater Podcast. See you next time.